0: Welcome to another Books and Culture podcast with Books and Culture's editor, John Wilson. I'm Stan Guthrie, and today, John, we're going to start a series called The Secrets of Book Reviewing.
1: That's right, Stan. The genesis of this series was a breakfast that I had recently with Sarah Pulliam Bailey, who you know well. Yeah, used to, I used to work with her at CT. Yeah, all, all three of us used to be on the same hallway. Sarah has since gone on to other things, and she's just starting a new job on the religion beat for the Washington Post. Mm -hmm. I think she'll be terrific at that. Well, just a few days ago, Sarah and I and my good friend, the writer Garnet Cadigan, had breakfast at Eclectic in Wheaton, which is a favorite breakfast spot for C.T. Folk. And after that breakfast, Sarah posted on Twitter that I had told her the secrets of book reviewing, (laughs) and (laughs) several people on Twitter said, I would like to know those secrets, and I said, of course, there really aren't any secrets, (laughs) and several people responded, that's exactly what someone who has secrets would say, wouldn't they? And Mm -hmm. (laughs) so I thought about that, and I thought, well, maybe it would be fine, even though they aren't really secrets, we'll call them secrets anyway. And I thought it would be fun to do a little series and also to tell people about it on Twitter and see if people had specific questions of things that they wanted us to talk about in subsequent episodes. So this is episode one. And as you can see, of course, one of the secrets is you have to have the right briefcase, (laughs) which is a bag from Trader Joe's made of a kind of plasticky material. You can see that I've used this for several years. The corners are getting pretty dented, and pretty soon I'm going to have to go to one of my reserve briefcases. That, that are <laughs> These are pristine bags that look just like this. And I assume you carry all the books that you're going to review in that bag. Not all of them, but I take a lot of books back and forth. Okay. You know? And so we're just going to look at a little stack here. But a couple of preliminary comments that have to do with... In a way, they're not being secrets. One of the reasons is that there's no one way to go about it. It depends partly on the nature of your publication and the audience you're serving. There's a tremendous difference between reviewing for a publication that is weekly, like the New York Times Book Review, or one that's monthly or one that comes out six times a year, like Books and Culture, or a scholarly journal that comes out four times or two times a year. And then, of course, a vast array of web-based review sources that often, some of them have issues, in quotation marks, that are comparable to an old-fashioned periodical, and that others are not on any such schedule at all. So all of those things plus the unique culture. You and I have talked about the fact that every magazine is a little culture with its own unwritten rules, its own priorities, and so on. And and so what might be just the right thing to do in one setting wouldn't make any sense in another.
0: Tell our listeners what, say, the biggest difference would be in doing a review for, say, Books and Culture, which comes out six times a year versus, say, a web
1: review. It's not just about... The time factor. The time factor is important because for some publications, it's extremely high on their list of priorities that the book just be recently out. And I remember many years ago when I didn't know the business at all and I pitched an idea to an editor and he said, well, this sounds interesting, but that book came out months ago. And I thought, well, so what? (laughs) (laughs) Right. And that was kind of naive of me because, you know, I had read reviews for quite a bit, but I didn't realize quite the extent to which that dominated certain settings. Now, one of the things that's very interesting about the web, you might say, oh, web reviewing must be really like that. Actually, one of the things that's been really great about the proliferation of sources on the web, now, of course, a lot of them, the pieces have never been edited. They're terrible. They're trash. But there's also a lot of really good stuff and you see a lot more pieces where someone is looking at a book or at a span of books by a writer that is not this week or yeah. last week. There's more of a sense of this is interesting if it was worth talking about now, it's worth talking about six months from now. and Of uh, course,
0: they don't have all the space
1: constraints. True. One of the reasons that Books and Culture is different from a lot of publications. I know I've told you before, I like to say that we're under the clock of the long now, which is the title of A Wonderful Book by Stuart Brand. And so in any given issue, we publish some reviews of books that have been out for a long time. Some of them might have been out for two years or more, Mm -hmm. and then others that are relatively current. So what I did for this first Episode was just grab a pile of books that would illustrate some of the things that this particular editor thinks about and looking at what's there and realizing that you're always working in an economy of abundance when you talk about reviewing. In other words, whatever your set of criteria are, whether you're New York Times Book Review, the New York Review of Books, the Times Literary Supplement, the Three Penny Review, or the Modest Books and Culture. Christian century, first things, whatever common wheel, you're always working with way, way more that would be worth doing than you're going to be able to do. And so you can't obsess too much about, I have to do this, I have to do this, I have to do that, because you're never going to be able to begin to cover all the things that are worth covering. You simply have to accept that fact and turn that into something that's positive rather than negative. Mm. Okay, well, let's dig into your stack here. Yeah, we're going to finish the whole first episode just with preliminaries, aren't we? Yeah. First of all, we have here two books, one published by Oxford University Press, Malcolm X at Oxford Union, Racial Politics in a Global Era. And then a second one, University of California Press, The Night Malcolm X Spoke at the Oxford Union, A Transatlantic Story of Anti-Racist Protest. They were both keyed to the 50th anniversary of this event. And that's something that happens all the time in publishing, as you know. Publishers love anniversaries. In this case, the conjunction of these two books on this particular event was intriguing. And I felt like this would make a good subject for us to do. And so I'm sending these books to a writer in New York, Peter Heltzel, who teaches at a seminary in New York and is very interested in these matters. And in due course, it won't be in 2014. We're already in 2015. It'll probably be well into this year before the piece actually appears in the magazine, but it will be at some point in the pages of Books and Culture. One thing that we have to do all the time is sort out not just the books that are already published, but books that are coming. It's a privilege. You feel like you're getting insider information, and it's delightful. Then we get an advanced copy of a book called GBH, Standing for Great Bodily Harm. (laughs) (laughs) Okay, that's a new one for me. By a writer named Ted Lewis. He's been dead for some years. He's a British writer. He wrote the novel that a very well-known movie, Get Carter, starring Michael Caine, was based on one of his novels. Soho Press, which publishes a lot of good crime fiction, has been reissuing some of his books, and they're bringing this one out, which is being published in the United States for the first time. And we're going to do a piece either in the print magazine or on the website on this book, but on the work of Ted Lewis more generally. Now we have The Longest Afternoon, The 400 Men Who Decided the Battle of Waterloo by Brendan Sims. This is another anniversary book. Mm. 2015 is the 200th anniversary of the Battle of Waterloo. Waterloo is one of those historical events that are significant enough to even be featured in the cartoons that we saw when we were little in the comic books. Mm-hmm. Even if they don't have any idea what really mattered about it, everyone has at least heard of Waterloo. So, as you might expect, there are a whole slew of books coming out to mark that 200th anniversary. This book, you might notice, has the admirable quality of being quite slim. So it's one that will probably make it into the final mix. We won't try to cover every single book (laughs) of all the books that are coming out late last year or this year to mark the occasion, but we will have several. And one of the tricks will be to find a reviewer who, on the one hand, is knowledgeable enough to take on the subject but also as someone who can write for a general audience. So if you were reviewing these books for, let's say, History Today, let alone a scholarly journal, you'd want someone who was a specialist in that area. We might find someone who's a specialist who also can write about it for the general reader, Mm. or we might find someone who, while not being a specialist in this particular period of military history, is a historian. So we could have a good generalist, We could have a historian. We could even have a specialist. Finding the right person will be the key.
0: How do you manage and tap your stable of writers? Do you have a spreadsheet where you say, okay, this person is really a good historical generalist. This person is good on sports.
1: I don't, but that doesn't mean that you shouldn't. I mean, people work differently, and I'm just not a spreadsheet kind of guy. I just have it floating around in my head, and, of course... (laughs) constantly am writing people like Mark sure. Noel heads my list, but all kinds of people and saying, I'm looking for someone who would be good to do this. Do you know somebody? Let's yeah. go to your next book. The next one, maybe we better make this the last one because the stack is still going on, <laughs> but we've been talking a long time. This one, which has a wonderful cover, is by a very interesting poet, Mary Jo Bang. It's called The Last Two Seconds. Mm. It's published by Gray Wolf this is something that we might review in the print magazine. We might review on the Books and Culture website. We might even do a podcast just about this book because she's a very interesting poet. So no secrets, as I warned you at the outset, and we just talked about a few books. I mean, That was an example of the kind of thing that I do audio rather than visual. If it was a visual thing, we would have the camera pan around now and show all these stacks of books in my office, and this would be exactly what I would do on a typical day. Let me ask you a
0: question that I'm sure is floating out there in the minds of some of our listeners. Have you ever discovered a review that you've received was written by someone
1: who did not read the book? You know, (laughs) I have read a number of reviews over the years that have made it clear that the reviewer did not thoroughly read the book. And I could even give some examples, but I won't. Probably that. shouldn't. <laughs> In the 20 years I've been doing books and culture, I don't ever remember getting a review where after I read it, I thought this person just didn't read the book. They may have fooled me. That certainly would not be impossible to do, but I don't ever remember that. On the other hand, as I said, you know, more often than should be the case, I've had the experience of reading a review, and the reviewer will say something which makes it clear that they couldn't have read the whole book very carefully. They might have just skimmed it. That does happen. So then the secret, at least for this episode one,
0: is that every book review you read, you can be assured in Books and Culture that the reviewer has actually read the book. I hope so, Stan. (laughs) (laughs) Okay. Thanks, John. All right.